Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. If the topic is leadership, I'm in. I've spent more than 20 years in the field teaching, learning, writing, and questioning. When I'm not working on Phrenesis, I travel, delivering keynotes, working with individuals and teams, and helping people from organizations across industries become better leaders. Want to learn more? Visit me at scottjallen.net. Phrenesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership. We explore relevant topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Listen Notes lists Phrenesis in the top 3% of podcasts worldwide. Phrenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, ILA brings together those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge, and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. If you find an episode that resonates, please share it with your colleagues and friends. And if you want more content, subscribe to my newsletter, The Leader's Edge. The link is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. And now, here's today's show. Okay, everybody, we have a special issue or a special edition of Phronesis. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, my second guest ever. Kathy Allen, Dr. Kathy Allen, she is co-hosting with me. So to bring you back into kind of the space of of Kathy, in her consulting practice, she specializes in leadership, coaching, and organizational change in nonprofit organizations, foundations, small to mid-sized businesses, community development, higher educational institutions, and collaborative networks. Dr. Allen has written and presented widely on topics related to leadership, human development, and organization development. Dr. Allen is a skilled facilitator of organizational change and organizational development. The earmarks of her work are the creation of shared ownership of the results of a change project, long-term sustainable change for the organization, and increased capacity for the staff members and leaders in those organizations. Dr. Allen has co-authored with Sin Cherry from the ILA, some of you will recognize that name, a systemic leadership, enriching the meaning of our work. She's written many articles and contributed to a variety of books, including The Transforming Leader, New Approaches to Leadership for the 21st Century, and Innovation in Environmental Leadership, Critical Perspectives. More recently, Dr. Allen has written Leading from the Roots, Nature-Inspired Leadership Lessons for Today's World. This book firmly anchors leadership in the soil of nature. It's a foundational leadership framework that challenges our 20th century views that leadership concepts can be universally applied to all contexts. And then we have Dr. Margaret Wheatley. And since 1966, Margaret Wheatley has worked globally in many different roles, a speaker, teacher, community worker, consultant, advisor, and formal leader. From these deep and varied experiences, she has developed the unshakable conviction that leaders must learn how to evoke people's inherent generosity, creativity, and need for community. As this world tears us apart, sane leadership on behalf of the human spirit is the only way forward. She is a best-selling author of nine books from the classic Leadership in the New Science in 1992 and Who Do We Choose to Be? 
Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Her latest work is The Warrior's Songline, a multi-sensory experience of the journey warriors for the human spirit take to become the presence of insight and compassion no matter what is going on around them. This new form melds together voice and sound, creating an evocative and transcendent listening experience. Now, before you got on, we were laughing a little bit about your, your experiences. And you've consulted on all continents except for Antarctica. And we're concerned. We're, we're thinking we need to find you a research station. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> Please do. They need leadership as well, don't they? I mean, probably more than anyone, given their stead, their context. <laughs> Margaret, we are so, so thankful for you being with us today. We uh, really, really appreciate your time. What else should listeners know about you before we jump into our conversation? Any other fun facts that you would like people to know? Sure. Fun. I don't know if they're fun facts, but they're significant. I raised a very large family of six boys and one girl that I married a family man who'd been widowed. And so I instantly inherited five children, age five to 16. Just as I was starting my doctoral thesis at Harvard, to which my advisor said when it all worked out well and I graduated, and then added two sons. So it's six boys and one girl who are now quite mature with families of their own, but the same father. But my thesis advisor at Harvard said, well, I always knew you were going to be on TV, Meg, with the story. I just never knew whether it was going to be daytime drama or nighttime family <laughs> comedy. So that's been a significant part of my life. Starting in 66, I was in the Peace Corps in Korea, post-war Korea. We were the first group to go into Korea. It was a totally foreign, foreign culture, different alphabet. Everything was different. There wasn't even any chocolate. There were no American brands there yet. And it was really still dealing with the trauma of the Korean War. That experience formed me in ways I've been forever grateful for because when we left, Another Peace Corps volunteer and I looked at each other and said, we can go anywhere now. We can wow. be anywhere. And that proved true. I was never afraid of being in, quote, foreign situations. I always knew if we just sit together, we will be human to human and exploring the differences and finding this deep commonality of the human experience. So that was a very formative and important experience as well. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Kathy, would you like to start, start us, us off? off? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I've been following your work since Leadership in the New Science, Meg, and attending various visits and workshops that you've done along yeah. the way and speaking engagements. And that's been, I think, as we said before the interview, over 30 years now. And I am curious, you are really a model of how People evolve and people's thinking evolves with experience and information and what you share and put out there and, and how people ad adopt it. So I'm curious, as you reflect on your body of work, how has your thinking about leadership organizations changed and evolved over this time? So I love this question. And I want to add a dimension to it. It's not how much my views of leadership and organizations have changed as much as how has staying in touch with the world 
being out in the world and staying very observant of what's going on, how has that necessitated the changes <laughs> in my perspectives and views? So I started out, Leadership in the New Science came out in 1992. At that time, and with the subsequent book in 96, A Simpler Way, I was really hopeful. And I use that word deliberately because I am now teaching and showing people that really hope is a dangerous source of motivation. But I was truly hopeful, innocent, and naive because I believed at that time that good ideas do change the world that we act rationally and from collective interest, not self-interest. I mean, I was just naive is a generous word. But those books, those two books, were about presenting a new paradigm with the full expectation that, of course, once leaders saw how much benefit there was to working in a self-organizing way, shifting from control to finding sources of natural order, working with human inherent motivations of wanting to contribute and be creative. I just thought this was a slam dunk that, of course, you could show great results in productivity, achieving goals, surpassing everything that leaders, managers dream of was available with the new paradigm. And then I learned that the world doesn't change through great ideas, but the world changes. The world changes. Mm. And I was really taken when I published my book of conversations, Turning to One Another, which is still one of my favorite books. The subtitle was Restoring Hope to the Future. My most recent subtitle still uses the word restoring and who do we choose to be? It's restoring sanity. And I think that is the arc of my work, always in response to what's going on in the world and what kind of contribution is possible. So with Walk Out, Walk On, co-authored with Deborah Fries, we really explored communities. Our subtitle is Communities Daring to Live the Future Now. Mm. Right. But that was part of my movement to realizing the real, the only source of potential change is at the community level, at the local level. And when I published So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World, I came up against the very hard reality that we are dealing with these massive systems that create oppression, that create poverty, that create injustice, that create environmental destruction. We're up against these systems that have emerged and you cannot change an emergent system. That book was so dark that even within my publisher, Bear Kohler, people started asking, what happened to Meg? (laughs) (laughs) This great purveyor of hope and relationships and healthy communities. What happened to her? And I just responded, have you noticed what's happened to the world? And I think that's where I want to hold people's 
I want to hold their, our feet to the fire here. We have to notice what's changed in spite of our best efforts, in spite of our our years and years of effort and perfecting our craft and coming up with change strategies that really work in a certain kind of world. So that what I'm saying now is we need to see clearly because we need to act wisely. And what's required of us now is very different than what I was thinking was possible with leadership and the new science. And that's why I've shifted my work into training leaders and activists and concerned citizens as warriors for the human spirit. The word warrior gets people's attention often negatively, but I use it with Joanna Macy's, the gift that she gave us with the prophecy of the Shambhala warriors, which is an ancient Tibetan prophecy. And I've been well-trained as a Tibetan Buddhist that at this time when that life hangs by the frailest of threads, the Shambhala warriors appear. Now that's another word for spiritual warriors. And we only have two weapons, compassion and insight. And let me tell you that in order to not be triggered and to have a stable mind and not lose heart and not be overwhelmed with these negative emotions that are have taken over greed, militarism, anger, rage, conflict, to not succumb to them, but instead be a steady, thoughtful, clear-minded presence dedicated to serving other people and serving the spirit of life. That takes training. And that's why for since 2015, I've been offering many different ways for people to develop a stable mind, clear perception, mind-body awareness, and a strong supportive community. And that's the work I'm going to keep doing till I take my last rational breath. One of the arcs that I see in your journey is how you have welcomed not just the cognitive conceptual frame, but have welcomed the heart and the spirit and the emotions into both your observations and your response to the observations. Like, how can we be a fully human being? Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that's what I see. And I think that... Good. Even even the difficult, dark, dark, so to speak, book that challenged a lot of people's, well, it really talks about, I think, the relationship that your ideas have had to them more than the content, you know, and the Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. To your ideas has been something that's kept them going over time. As we have each individually and through our networks tried to influence this emergent set of ideas to lead the world forward. Because in some ways, I think we are reaping what we have sown. And what we have sown, it's not just the systems. We have embedded the leadership paradigm into our legal structure, into our management theories, into our organizational theories, into our social relationships, into our response to the world. And so we're going against a whole lot of systems that are in place to hold the old paradigm in place, which I think is really this, about the enclosure. This of wealth. paradigm preceded our good efforts at leadership and organizational change. I'm I'm just reading one commentary that places it back four to five thousand years. I think that's appropriate. It was 
originally the patriarchal view, but then within the patriarchal view was taking control of nature rather than participating. You know, I know many of us now are are learning from indigenous worldviews, and it sounds like your new book does that as well, which I'm very eager to read. But we were so out of relationship with everything, really, when you think of it. The way the planet works, her laws are inviolable, and we're reaping the consequence of that. The way we were taught to separate mind and body, starting with Descartes, just wreaked havoc on us as fully human beings. So it's this great disconnection and displacement of ourselves from proper relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with the planet. That's what we're reaping now, those consequences. Well, and Kathy, I mean, when I think of your work, I think of when you look at the laws of nature, and Mag, you had just alluded to this, we are not aligning with (laughs) in many ways. We are going against the grain, and that's probably not going to go well for us because there's some larger systems in place that will win. (laughs) Uh, Well, you're a little too qualifying it with probably or most systems. We have just completely screwed up our relationship with the planet while the planet maintains her laws, her ways of being, her cause and effect and consequences. And it's all just playing out now in a way that is now irreversible and unstoppable. And we just have, my own work is preparing leaders, activists, communities to get prepared for more and more dislocation and migrations and food shortages, water issues, increasing environmental destruction, because that is now irreversible. But we can still be together in ways to nourish and support one another. But we're not getting out of this. And in the new edition of Who Do We Choose to Be, which becomes available June 6th, everybody, please take notice. It's 80% new material. I felt the world had changed so dramatically in uh, six years that I had to just rewrite the whole thing. We're dealing with climate and the ways we've changed the planet and then ignored the laws of of the planet, of Mother Nature. I just named that both. We're acting like masters of the universe. That doesn't go well with the universe. <laughs> it's like, what do you think you're doing here, human? 3.8 billion years. But the other, the other perspective I have is that we're really gotten into such extreme science denial. Mm-hmm. Really. We just pretend human will and human getting together, we're going to make it all fine again. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, one of the principles of nature, a regenerative system, the only long-running regenerative system, 3.8 billion years, that we can learn from for the future. And one of those principles is that nature evolves with information and feedback. Oh, good, Kathy. Thank you for bringing that in. We're getting a lot of feedback here. (laughs) But I'm struck by your language of wisdom and 
leading wisely or evolving our own kind of sense of evolution and wisdom. I've often thought that it goes from information to knowledge and knowledge to wisdom. I agree with that progression. So I'm curious, what are you kind of embedding in the way you're helping people evolve towards wisdom? Well, I'm certainly drawing now in my latest book, which I will keep promoting because I think it's so important. I drew from several sources, different lenses from Western science, indigenous science, indigenous ways of being, you know, of community at the center, living system science, which is quite different from physics, because I wanted people to be able to see more clearly. But it is clearly indigenous wisdom, not that's going to save us now. It's not going to, we cannot restore what has been destroyed. That is just not how living systems work. There's no such term of reversibility in life. It's always creating newness and not necessarily better newness, but it's creating adaptive responses to what's going on. So my own need right now for everything I'm teaching and writing is to include, it's both traditional wisdom from people who live in traditional cultures and spiritual grounded wisdom and indigenous wisdom, not to help us out of the mess we've created but certainly to help us come together in ways that we can support and nourish and heal our communities and ourselves. When you talk about it happening at the community level, would you explore that a little bit, Meg? Yes. I mean, I've long-term felt, long-time felt that community is the locus of change. And it's also the source of possibility. And one of the things I've learned and written about now is that if you put community well-being and healing at the center of any crisis, the way you treat individuals within that is completely different than our punitive lock them up send them into exile ways of of the Western world, which are now reaching ridiculous proportions of punishment and, and fear and exclusion of those we fear. So from a community-based perspective, and I learned this first working in South Africa and Zimbabwe, and then from many indigenous cultures, I learned this at a school, uh, the Siksika Reservation, many, many years ago when they invited me to come talk about community, but really I just learned about community being with them. If a student creates a problem, does something wrong, violates the rules that have been well-established and clarified, the student is not sent away or sent out for punishment. The student is brought into a circle, a council with elders, teachers, which in itself is fearsome for a teenager. Like, I don't want to have to sit in council and evaluate my behavior. But the whole purpose is you sit in circle. You are all equals. You are all members of the community. 
And then everyone together explores what happened. What can we learn that will benefit the community's health and well-being, which is the paramount concern of reviewing any infraction or crime? How does the community grow stronger by noticing what just happened? Now, that for me is so eye-opening. I also saw it in the Army when I was learning about after-action reviews. With all of our work now on diversity and inclusion, these are practices that start with the primary value, community must be made healthier. Community must learn from this. And any individual error or mistake is a lens into something that's the community needs to learn about. But in the after-action review process, which has become cannibalized and misused now, but when I first learned it directly from witnessing tank warfare trials in the desert in California, every point of view, every person who was involved was asked, what just happened? And then asked, why do you think it happened that way? Those are the two best organizational diagnostic questions ever. And it's not about, well, we want to be inclusive or we want to be diverse. It's no, everyone saw something different. And in order to learn, we're going to have to get all those perceptions engaged without any barriers. So in the one case with my army example, it's about learning and I've made this story pretty well known, I think, that when I was commenting that I to a colonel, I've never seen so much learning. I've never been in, this is a learning organization. And Peter Singy felt the same thing. And when I said to him, this is incredible learning organization, the colonel just replied, oh, Meg, we got that figured out a long time ago. It's better to learn than be dead. And I've, I've you know, offered that for, I don't know, 25 years as, yes, we should be learning from each other. But then bringing in these indigenous councils, I mean, I've done a lot of work in circle practice and council, but where what I really learned from it this time around is you make community the priority here. You're not protecting the community like we do from criminal elements, right? You are protecting the community so it can be the container for and sanctuary and possibility for everyone. That's radical. I am playing with a, an article with a colleague in Utah who's very been very involved over her whole career in child care providers and with child care providers in Utah. And one of the things we were recently observing was how Conflicts are mediated through the social contracts with these providers. So when two kids are going at it, it's not a solution. It's just like you described. It's not the solution of, you know, who's right, who's wrong, who should be isolated, etc. But it's how are we together? And we they kind of try to figure out what's the development and the learning that goes in to that deeper question. And I also wondered about the global north and the global south and the different perspectives and voices 
that have influenced our evolution as a kind of global society. And I keep wondering, what if the global South, the voices of the global South and the experiences of the global South were more vocal, more loud than some of the the global North, which carries an awful lot of this kind of thinking about dominance and enclosure, wealth and power. Yes, yes, yes. A very large but, which is we silenced those voices, we ignored them, and we corrupted them Mm -hmm. away from their traditional wisdom and cultures. And now it's too late. It's too late. I mean, I've worked a lot in the Global South. Burkana's work was primarily in the Global South for, for over a decade. And I'm actually more comfortable working in those environments than in our halls of power in the North. But what's happened is I use the word corruption, that there's, you know, been insistence that any of your traditional wisdom is not modern. You have to get modern. You have to get certified and educated in Western ways. Even in China, I mean, there's no basis now in Confucianism or communities been totally corrupted by dictatorships and patriarchy. So I think for me, this is what should have been, but what is no longer possible. And that's the view that I bring to everything. If you want to talk about restoring, regenerating anything on this planet, you really have to look at, is it too late? Mm. And that's the hard truth. That's my work right now is to take people up to that wall and find a way beyond that wall to discover truly meaningful contribution. What's your sense of of some ways that we get beyond that wall? And I know that we've probably touched on some of them in our conversation, yeah. Meg, but what are what are two or three things that you're thinking about as past? Well, this is the heart of my work now. And I ask people to forget about what they wanted or hoped to achieve, what they self-defined as meaningful, purposeful work for themselves, and to be out in the world as awake as possible, past your biases and past your judgments, past your triggers. All of that takes practice. That's why it's warrior training. But to be able to see clearly enough to ask the question, what's needed here? What's needed in this situation? What's needed in this meeting? What's needed in my family? What's needed in this controversy? What's needed for this cause that we're all working so hard for? What is truly needed here? And if you can ask that question, then you're overwhelmed with a multiplicity of needs, right? So the second question is very important, which is, am I the right person in the right circumstances right now to contribute to this need? And there's where you have to evaluate your own state of mental health, your situation, if it's stable enough, if you and if you've got the right skills. So it's not just, yeah, I'm good at conflict management, but how stable is my home base right now? Or do I feel supported by friends and family or allies? So we're no more Don Quixote's just going after these 
lovely, attractive windmills, which definitely need to be addressed. So I'm really focusing people on shifting our question, I guess, our our focus, our lens, not what's meaningful to me in terms of contribution, which we all spent decades defining, me too, but instead being able to just see more clearly what is needed here, what's going on here, and what role could I play possibly in making a contribution. And you have to keep asking this question over and over and over again. This is not a steady state world anywhere, anytime now. In fact, one climate scientist in the Arctic, and he was discussing the rate of change with two other climate scientists. And he was saying, it's it's happening so rapidly now, the changes in Arctic ice melt and air currents and habitat, he said, it's as if the exponential change has been exponentiated. (laughs) I don't know how to write that mathematically, but it really rings true to me. So we have to stay, you know, being alert and awake is the primary skill, as well as wanting to contribute wanting to contribute on the world's terms, on the situation's terms, not on some of my predetermined definitions of what will be meaningful work to me. You know, I have noticed coming out of, during and coming out of the pandemic, kind of a rise of networks of people who are coming together and asking those two questions. Yes, definitely. It's just amazing, but it all operates below the level of media presence. So it's not reported on the evening news. It's not talked about as a movement or something that is major that's happening. But a lot of people are showing up in a different way, just like you described. Right. Maybe not in your warrior training. They're not signing up for that, but they are in their own ways, I think, beginning to show up. In some way, because the and what I, I I absolutely agree with you, Kathy. I noticed that because of the numbers of people who now show up, <laughs> when I put out a call or a training event. But there's a a very important stage process here that when we first wake up to what's going on in this world, as Stephen Jenkinson, the author and spiritual teacher, said. If you truly wake up to this world, you wake up with a sob. Mm -hmm. You wake up in the deepest grief. And my work has been, yes, we acknowledge the grief. It's valid, but don't stop there because there's really important work to be done here. And it's the work that other millions of people have modeled and have modeled for us. It's like you get on with what needs to be done here and you get over your own storyline about, oh, I'm suffering so greatly with such grief and a sense of loss. So there's always a point where you, I mean, I love this book title, Who Do You Choose to Be? Because we are operating on what is Victor Frankl's, what he defined as the final freedom In any situation, humans never lose the freedom to choose their response. 
So who do we choose to be? Well, we're either going to withdraw and just get temporarily comforted in our distraction bubble, or we're going to step into this and really make a contribution, but it's not the same level of contribution. I mean, I've been working at a global level with high-powered leaders, did, and now I'm focused on both individuals and islands of sanity. Mm-hmm. You know, very different. Bring it back to what we can create together, not to change the world, but to create healthy community that supports healthy human beings mm. for as long as we can, for as long as we can. Well, what I hear from you, Megan, please let me know if if this is on target, but there's an honoring of how you've thought about some of these things. There's also a acknowledgement of much of that may not have worked or yielded the results that we had hoped that it would. And there's an acknowledgement that things need to be improved, that we are not in a good space in many ways. And then there's this sense of how do we act wisely and approach this work in a new and different way to see, see if we can yield new results, to see if we can connect in different ways. And a starting point there is at the community level. Does that encapsulate? Somewhat, but it misses a very important depth to me, which is what is the meaning of a good human life? Sure. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. And if you grew up in a war situation, you weren't worried about the things that we now use to define a good human life. If you're just coming out of a tornado disaster, you're not focused on any other criteria for a meaningful life except I have my family and our community is supporting each other. This is the biggest but most essential shift we success-oriented, can-do, want-to-change-the-world people. I led that category for a while, I think. But now it's really, what is the ultimate value of living and being human? How can I be loving, creative, kind, generous? So I can easily now sound like a preacher, but these are spiritual truths that have been taught to us by every spiritual tradition. So for the people who are just waking up and sobbing to the tragedy of this world, really understanding where we are, the next stage is, no, let's open to what is truly meaningful, independent of what's going on around us. And those experiences of serving, supporting other people are joyful. That's the true source of joy. Mm. Not circumstances, but our our relationship with one another. I only want to work with those people now because we are so needed. And there are more and more of us waking up and not knowing what to do with our sense of loss and grief and anger and rage. You know, I've been through all of those stages, but there's work to be done. Let's get over our own personal feelings and just learn how to be present for other people in Mm. community. We're just about out of time. So I was just curious if you have any advice for folks. People wake up in your experience. Is there anything that helps them show up in a different way? 
Well, I would first say, don't be afraid to face reality. Find a few good people that you can explore this with. Don't be afraid of these darkest, terrifying emotions of feeling overwhelmed with despair, depression, grief, rage, all of which are very familiar to me in my community. But if you are willing to face reality together with other people, and I would say some good guidance, some good teachers who are out there, there is great meaningful work to be found. Mm. And it's required of us, really. So one of the You've always been someone who's wanted to make a difference. You've done your very best. You've learned your craft. You've applied your skills. And now when you face reality, you realize, oh, it's not going to work out the way I thought it was going to. And it's not a question of working harder or getting lost in your own personal emotional darkness. Just Mm -hmm. look around. There are people there who need you. There are people in your family who could benefit by you just asking, what's needed here? Mm. There are people in your community. There are people at work. But we're not no longer believing that by us waking up and developing these skills that we're going to make everything better. We're not. Mm. We're in this now, and we just have to be in it with love and grace and clarity, and we will find many paths of contribution. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we always close out, Meg, by asking folks what they've been reading, listening to, streaming, watching, something that's caught their attention recently. (laughs) It could have something to do with what we've discussed. It could have nothing to do with what we just discussed. But for both of you, what's something you've come across recently that's caught your attention? I am focused in two arenas. One is the collapse of modern physics view of what's really going on. So I listened to a lot of physicists in conversation about that. What is reality? We absolutely know nothing. That's that's my <laughs> science background. So the space, the space time, it's not a thing. That that stuff? It's so far beyond that. I mean it's really wonderful. I've been watching physics uh have to come to terms with the fact that we only understand 0.01% of what's going on out there. And the Webb telescope has helped that. So that's a that's my <laughs> relaxation. <laughs> that's Let's my get out of this view of reality. <laughs> but the other thing is there's two books that I just rely on now for indigenous wisdom. And one is called Restoring the Kinship Worldview by a dear colleague and friend for Arrows, Darcia Narvaez. And the second is a title that just got my attention of Indigenous elders. Both of these interview Indigenous peoples. It's called We Are the Middle of Forever by Stan Rushworth and Dale Jamar. And I just, that title still just is like, wow, that's a great title. Yes. Yes, that is a really cool title. Yeah, so that's what I've been reading. Kathy, how about you? What's caught your attention? What might listeners be interested in? The Sand Talk is also kind of an indigenous 
Yeah. Nice book that I've enjoyed quite a bit. And The Dark Emu is from uh, looking at Maui native traditions and tribes. Um, oh, I don't know that. Part. Australia. And also one of the provocative ideas in that one is that the complexity that we need today in terms of thinking was present way back when. And so, you know, Amen. This, this image of uh, indigenous worldviews as simple or simplistic, or it just has a beautiful argument against that. So the title is The Dark, the Dark Emu. Emu. Thank Emu. you for that. And I am also, I'm playing, I'm in a project with the Pachamama Alliance, the One Planet Educational Network Open, and we're collaborating together to see if we can't figure out what the developmental model is for moving people from passion to action. Kind of maybe the warrior framework that you talked about in a yeah. lot of what you talked about. I'm going to see if we can't figure out how to embed some of those things in their work. Well, that's just, good work. That's very good work. Yeah. yeah. I just think that developmentally, we also are on some track that limits what we should really be engaged in, in a developmental kind of point of view. So, and I've also been reflecting on how education has become an instrument in holding the old things in place. Oh, for sure. For sure. As collaborators and colluders, and what do we, what threads do we need to pull there to uh, ask deeper questions about what we should be doing? Meg, Kathy, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Oh, fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And for listeners, there are a lot of resources in the show notes. So please check out the show notes and you can find a lot of information there. To Meg, Kathy, thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Be well and take care. Okay, Kathy. So it's been actually a couple of weeks now since we had this conversation with Meg. And as I was listening back to it, you know, something that just really struck me was her phrasing, you know, it's too late. It's mm. too late. She said it mm. a couple of times. And I mean, I would just love to better understand how you kind of experience that phrasing. What are some things you have on your mind as you think about that? Yes, for me, the too late could leave you with an emotional feel of all is lost, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, Take me to a happy place, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have that experience of it more. Uh, more, I was thinking about it as uh, it's too late to go back. You basically, some turning points in your life, you can't go back and reclaim what you imagined that you used to have. You can only go forward. And so I I think what she was reminding us is that we can't go back. We have to go forward. And what the forward will be is going to be something different than what we've had in the past. Mm. So she's really speaking to those of us that yearn for maybe some sanity that used to seem to be a part of our life, but isn't really anymore. And we have to go forward. That's what she's, that's, that was one of her messages. I think the other couple of messages was she's gone from ideas, you know, at the beginning she talks about, she thought ideas had the power to change the world. And 
now she's firmly planted her feet in uh, training leader warriors mm. for this world. And so that's a very action oriented orientation. So she's she's moved from just ideas are enough to ideas without action won't help us move through this phase that it's too late to go back. We only can go forward. And then the last insight I had was that she's moved from teaching above the, the neck, you know, ideas of the head to the heart and the spirit and the whole body. And so she's teaching and doing leadership development from a whole body framework now. Hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm so happy that we had that conversation with her and I'm so happy that you were open to partnering with me. I knew I needed a co-pilot, a very well, <laughs> uh, a, a, a expert co-pilot. And uh, you, you filled that role beautifully, Kathy. And I can't thank you enough. We'll do it again. I think we have a couple ideas bumbling around about what we could do in the future. But uh, so thankful for your time. And thank you so much for helping us make sense of that conversation. And just very, very much appreciate you. Yeah, it was very, very fun. And it was really fun to sit with Meg and listen to her reflect on the arc of how she has evolved and grown, not just in her thinking, but in her thinking, her practice, her life. And many of us who are big fans and have read a lot of her work, we just think that she is an inspiration to us. And, you know, sometimes our inspirations go through times where they struggle. And I know some colleagues who have mentioned that and they want her to go back to the inspirational ideas only kind of thing, because they use that to inspire their own practice and their own work. But I think her too late comment again is, no, we have to go forward. Mm. And we have to see what is emerging out there and be a part of that emergence. Love it. Listeners, be on the lookout. Alan and Alan, <laughs> we will ride again. <laughs> be well. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I'm also on LinkedIn, so let's connect. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And now here's my daughter, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.